here we are at La Bastide in the glorious south of France. We're doing a second session uh, with Dr. John Lennox. As I mentioned in the earlier session, we had Dr. John Lennox speak at Socrates and City a number of years ago in New York City. Uh, he spoke on this book, uh, Seven Days That Divide the World, The Beginning According to Genesis and Science, which I read upside down flawlessly. Uh, <laughs> And um, this is fascinating. If you haven't seen that Socrates in the City, go to SocratesInTheCity.com and, and check it out. It's, it's extraordinary. Uh, or you may have seen it on uh, NRB TV. Um, uh, in this uh, hour, I simply want to continue uh, the previous conversation on the question of uh, science and God or science and faith with uh, Dr. Lennox. Uh, if you don't know about Dr. Lennox, shame on you. Uh, actually, shame on me, because it's my job to tell you. Um, he is a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford. I'm reading from the back of his book, just to make sure I don't get this wrong. He's a fellow in mathematics and, and the philosophy of science. Uh, and it is, it is uh, science more than math, but uh, both of them that will concern us uh, today. Uh, he's the author of so many books. Uh, one of them, God's Undertaker, uh, Has Science Buried God? He lectures very widely and at great length, but today we only have an hour, alas, uh, with him, so I'd better get out of the way. Dr. Lennox, welcome to Socrates in the City. Thanks for coming. And folks, welcome to all of you uh, to Socrates in the City at La Bastide. Well, we're almost out of time, so let's get to it. Um, Dr. Lennox, there is really too much that I want to talk to you about. So let's start with something maybe that everyone can grab onto. The basic idea that science is somehow at odds with the idea of God is at the heart of uh, the West. It's a terrible idea. You've spent much of your life um, debunking this really silly, uh, embarrassing idea that many people hold. Um, a figure comes to mind I thought we might talk about for a moment, Dr. Stephen Hawking. I, I want to start with him because here's a man who seems to insist that the idea of God is uh, inconsistent with science and reason. It's hard for me to believe that someone of that intellect would not see the deep problems with his position. It is very difficult because of the fact that Newton, who was arguably the brightest scientist who ever lived and who held the Lucasian chair, he believed in God. And the irony of the two of them, and I've often thought about this, is Newton believed in God and one of his reasons that supported that faith in God was his discoveries in science, including the law of gravity. And when he discovered the law of gravity, he didn't say, now I can explain it scientifically, I don't need God. No. What he did was write the most brilliant book in the history of science, the Principia Mathematica. And at the front of it, he explicitly said, I hope this persuades thinking people to believe in a deity. So instead of saying, I've discovered the law of gravity, I don't need God, he said, what a brilliant God that did it that way. I mean, he actually wrote that in the Principia yes, Mathematica. That, that, that's I didn't correct. know that. that that's that, that's rather correct. amazing. He really sensed that 
there was a pathway here to God through his scientific discovery. And then the centuries go by and we come to Stephen Hawking, who in his bestseller, A Brief History of Time, which they say is the most unread book in history. That is correct. <laughs> because everyone everybody's it, no one got it, it and yeah. everybody gets to about page four. I've read it all, actually. But he left space for God at the end. And there's the famous statement, if we had a unifying theory, theory of everything, which means a scientific theory to unify the four basic forces of nature, we would know the mind of God. But... In a much more recent bestseller, which is called The Grand Design, and that's a very interesting title for him to use, which he co-authored with Leonard Mlodinoff, who's the physicist behind the Star Wars films. Excuse me, there's a physicist behind the Star Wars films? Well, there was a physics advisor, apparently, behind that. But I don't want to go into that. No, and I don't want you to go into that. Okay. But having said that, Let me say that I remember Stephen Hawking. He was at Cambridge just ahead of me, and he was just beginning to walk with a stick and a limp. He developed motor neuron disease, and of course his whole story is the most famous living scientist, is a story of immense courage against supreme odds. And I have no doubt that he's a genius. He's light years ahead of me in his mathematical ability. What I query is his use of science to suggest to people that they have to choose between science and God. Now, the thing that really captivated my mind with him was I was sent a pre-production part of his book, The Grand Design. Which just came out a few years ago. Yes, and it contained this, which is his central argument. And it has to do with gravity. And it said this, because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Because there's a law of gravity, the universe universe can and will create itself from from nothing. nothing. Now, when I read that, I thought, coming in? And I read it again, then I wrote a book about it. (laughs) Because I could see almost immediately where the problem lies. So I read through Hawking's book. Now, Hawking has got huge influence because of his status. In this book, he now comes out as an atheist. Yeah. And this is his main reason. It's ironic. Newton says gravity is a wonderful evidence, among many others, of God. Hawking says this is the evidence that there isn't a God. We don't need God. And I thought, what is going on here? What are this man's reasons for not believing in God? Now, up until shortly before that, I had thought that many of these people, their problem was a failure to understand the nature of science. I still hold that view. But what suddenly dawned on me, there's another huge reason why they say you've got to choose between science and God. And that's because they've got a false idea of God. A false idea of God. How so? Of God. Yes. Because Hawking starts off by talking about the Greek gods. 
And we've got to get rid of those before we can do science. And I agree with him. Yeah. If you think that the moon is a god, you won't study it because you might upset the god. And in that sense, science has done a good job of getting rid of those gods. Yeah. Now, when you think of those gods, what are they? They're what we now call today technically gods of the gaps. I don't understand lightning, so I say it's a god. So the word god is for an unknown X that explains lightning. But once I do a course on astrophysics in Oxford or somewhere else, God just disappears. So that, they, so that they God posit, disappears. So God, according to their false definition, the very idea of God uh, pushes out reason, and once reason comes in, God disappears. That's, that's exactly right. Now, what I suddenly realized is this. They currently place the God of the Bible in the category of a Greek God. And I was up against Michael Shermer. I don't know whether you've ever come across Michael Shermer. I know of him. Editor of Skeptic Magazine in a debate in Oxford. And I think it was he. There were three people against three of us, you see. And he looked at me and said, you are an atheist. He, and said, I, he said that you're an atheist. I'm an atheist. And I knew what was coming, of course. You are an atheist with respect to Zeus Artemis, Baal, and he went on far too long because I know most of these gods. Um, I'd come across them before. And then he said with a great grin, we just go one God further and we reject Jehovah, the God of the Bible. And I thought, how ignorant can a person be of the ancient gods? Because if you've done any thinking at all and read anything, which I have because I'm very interested in the ancient gods, they're the background to my book on Daniel, and they're very similar, but that's a different story. Is your book on Daniel out? Oh, yes. What's the name of that? Against book? the Flow. Against the Flow. Yes. And, and you've just reminded me, forgive me for interrupting, but your website... Is johnlennox.org. Dot org. Yes, and there's a lot of stuff on Veritas, a huge yeah. amount, about 60 lectures I've given in the U.S., okay. debates and so on and so forth. I'm very interested in the ancient gods. And the common characteristic they have is, in all those ancient mythologies, they have a cosmogony, yes, but they also have a theogony. And a theogony is the genesis of the gods yeah. because the gods appeared from the primeval stuff of the universe. In other words, they're material gods. That, that's and, now again, again and again, I have to hit pause because that's a big idea. <laughs> oh, it, it has not occurred to most people that if the gods of the ancient world, and I'm familiar with some of these creation myths, they came out of something. So you say, therefore, they are material that's, that's gods. right. Let that's, me put it this way. That's an extraordinary point. The world expert probably on this topic was a man called Werner Jaeger, the professor at Oxford, and he puts it this way. In the ancient Near East, the gods are descended from the heavens and earth. The God of the Bible created the heavens and earth. Now, that's the difference. The God of the Bible doesn't belong to the category of those gods in any sense. Right. But the mistake they're making and Hawking's making is, imagine that we think the God of the Bible is a God of the gaps. He's just put there to explain until we get a scientific explanation. 
Then it dawned on me, if you believe that God's like that, you have to choose between God and science. Yeah. Why? Because that's the way you've defined God. You've defined God to be a non-explanation waiting for science to come along. So, you, of course, you have to choose. The God of the Bible is not a God of the gaps. And I often say to people, have you ever read the first line of the Bible? It goes like this. In the beginning, God created the bits of the universe we don't yet understand. <laughs> and they all laugh, as you do, politely. Thank you very much. Um, that's nonsense. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is grammatically a merism. Everything he created. The bits you do understand and the bits you don't. Moreover... Think about ordinary life. The more I understand about art, the more I admire the genius of a Rembrandt, not the less. The more I understand of engineering, the more I admire the genius of a Henry Ford, not the less. And going up to the universe, the more I understand of the universe, the more I admire. This is Newton, the God who did it that way. Okay, and isn't the, this reminds me of C.S. Lewis. And by the way, I don't want to forget to say that you were a student of C.S. Lewis. No, I listened to some of his lectures. That close enough. Okay. You saw him lecture. I'll accept that American definition. You, les you listened to some of his lectures. <laughs> I did. I listened to the last lectures he ever gave at Cambridge in 1962. That, that means that you were a student of his, whether you know it or not, yes. um, in the loose sense. I wasn't registered in the English that faculty to study medieval and Renaissance literature. We don't care. Uh, but I'd studied it anyway. But I, 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 I guess it brings up Lewis because Lewis's literature, his fiction, in some ways shines a light on theology and understanding in a way that I've never seen before. It's as though these scientific materialists are positing um, a finite reality and therefore have a zero-sum game view such that rather than one thing increasing everything or two things inc increasing each other, having this mutual compatibility that, uh, that is glorious and leads to infinity, they are making it sound as though it's a zero-sum game and we explain things and explain things and explain things and the more we explain things, the more we push out God. Because they believe in a, in a finite universe and they believe that that's all there is, they have this worldview in a sense. And, and the God of the Bible uh, is infinite, is eternal. In other words, these are ideas that are incompatible with a material worldview. I'm, I'm saying too much uh, in it, so feel free to, to respond or not respond. But I, it strikes me as you're talking about this that I, I just hadn't thought of that before, that they have a very, very limited zero-sum game view of the universe. Well, that's true, but what we're saying here is that they do not understand the biblical concept of God. See, Richard Dawkins, he says in one of his books that you've got scientific explanation, you've got the God explanation. They're both scientific type explanations. Right. That, to my mind, is profound misunderstanding. The God explanation is not even in the same category as the scientific explanation. And I'm going to move to that. And I said to him, much to his irritation, actually, on one occasion, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. 
You know, you're tilting at a windmill, you see. And Richard Dawkins, he shows it, he reveals it in The God Delusion, where he says, and here's one of his main arguments, I couldn't believe it. I just could not believe it. If you say God created all this, you're going to have to ask who created God. And that's nonsense. And it is nonsense, but not in the way he thought. Because if you ask who created God, you're assuming God is created. Well, I don't believe in a created God. We usually call them idols, and we don't need Dawkins to tell us they don't exist. You see, he's not addressing even the question if there's an eternal God. The Bible claims God is eternal. He's not created. So his question doesn't even apply, as I pointed out to him in that debate. But then I got this thing in the tail. I said, you, you believe the universe created you, don't you? So let me ask you your question, which you think is valid. Who created your creator? I'm still waiting for an answer, and that's 10 years ago. Well, it's funny because when you talk about somebody saying, well, who created God? They're still staying inside the time-space cosmos. In other words, that, that we say that God created time and space, and so causality is, is in that idea, that if, that, that if God created something, who created God? But that's still inside the yeah. creation. But it's actually logically very silly. I mean, it's, I used to get it in Russia, and I used to, it, it used to be very funny. They'd ask me this question, or children would ask it in Britain. I never heard it from professors. But in Russia, they'd say this, and I, I'd say to them, these were the old days, you know, when I used to go. They'd tell me, i say, what do you believe about the universe? They'd say, it's eternal. Oh, I said, isn't that interesting? You believe in an eternal universe, and yet your question, who created God, shows you cannot conceive of an eternal God. Why is that? How can you conceive of an eternal universe, not an eternal God? It's just totally inconsistent. I said, your problem is you can't even think there might be an eternal reality that is a person, you see. But it is a very silly objection, and to find it at the heart of his book. But I want to go back to the second main reason. I said Hawking and Dawkins' problem is they're dealing with the wrong concept of God by pitching God against science as an explanation. But now move to the science. And you can very easily see why Dawkins and the rest of them are completely wrong in suggesting God is the same kind of an explanation and therefore in competition with a scientific explanation. Very simple illustration. Why is the water boiling? Well, it's boiling because you've got heat energy from a gas flame being conducted through the bottom of a good Irish copper kettle and agitating the molecules of water. That's why it's boiling. Is it? It's boiling because I want a cup of tea. Now, people snigger at that and so on. Rightly so, because they see I'm being foolish. That the explanation in terms of heat energy, the scientific explanation, doesn't compete with the personal explanation of my desire for a cup of tea. In other words... Both are correct. Both are correct. And you do not have to push one away and say this no. is the correct one. Both are It's as if correct. to say, because I can explain this in terms of heat equations and physics, John Lennox doesn't exist. I mean, that is the level of the argument I, at the moment. I, 
I actually remember in grade school getting this materialistic worldview pushed on us. People would say, a teacher would say, uh, you're made of chemicals, and if I were to reduce those chemicals and sell them, you're worth about $2.86. This is in the, se- up a bit, in the 70s, anyway. in the 70s, yeah. <laughs> You're but worth pl- a bit more, Eric, in case you're Thank feeling you. inferior. Yeah, now I'm worth, worth about 7 more. or $8. But, <laughs> but the thing is that that very idea is itself a lie. In other words, that, that a human being could be reduced to chemicals. Right. I am is, chemicals, this is, but, you're but I'm more. more than chemicals. That's right. I'm both. This is reductionism again. Yeah. Now, go back to my illustration. Even kids can see it. Yeah. I, I tell kids in, in school, you know, they're 10 or 11, and I say to them, look, here's a a Ford Galaxy engine, motor, in an automobile. Now, I want to give you two explanations for that. One is automobile engineering and physics. The other is Henry Ford. Tell me which explanation is true. But, sir, you need both. They've got it. Why cannot some of these high-powered professors see that? I, I the think way they're I'm... simply uncomfortable with the idea of God. I think they'll do anything to shy away from it because... It really would blow their world to smithereens. It does. And it they does. are frightened. And I think that they're, you know, as I hear you talk, it strikes me that they and their ilk are on the run because science increasingly makes the case for God. The more science we know, this is the irony, and I think that this wouldn't have been true 100 years ago. And so that worldview has carried on and on through the decades, but that the science of the last 40 or 50 years points us more and more to believe that there's a God. And I, and I think that they're willfully ignorant of that because to, to acknowledge, we haven't talked about the fine-tuned universe, but you couldn't know most of what we know about the fine-tuned universe 50 years ago. No. And the more we know about the universe, the more uncomfortable it makes someone who says, oh, there are plenty of planets out there with life on them and it's inevitable that life will, will evolve. Well, let's and, come to that in two minutes. Yeah. The bottom line for the argument I've just given is this. And anybody can use this argument. I'm always looking. C.S. Lewis taught me this. If you can't explain your faith in God in words that people can understand, either you don't believe it or you don't understand it. That's the big slogan in front of my mind. Help people understand. Here's the bottom line. God no more competes with science as explanation of the universe than Henry Ford competes with the law of internal combustion as an explanation for the motor car engine. Anybody can understand that. We are used in life of having multi-level explanations. And the irony about the kettle boiling thing is that people have been drinking and enjoying tea for thousands of years before they understood about heat equations. It's the personal explanation, the agent explanation, that is usually the more important. Now, there's one little codicil on that. I'm passionate about science, but we need to bring it down to size. I was taught at school, some teachers were very good, some were a catastrophe. But anyway, I was taught the law of gravity. We've talked about gravity, so we might as well continue with it. But in my naive understanding of that of my teacher, the law of gravity explained gravity. I was an adult before I discovered, to my infinite surprise and delight, the law of gravity does not explain gravity. Newton didn't know what gravity was, and he said so. It's right in his famous statement, I do not make hypotheses. 
non-fingal hypothesi. That was in Latin his statement that he didn't know what gravity was. But he did know that he got a wonderful mathematical description of something that enabled you to do brilliant calculations. Now, we're in the situation, I often say to people, what is an explanation? What is the scientific explanation? And, of course, the naive thing is that's the explanation. We don't need anything else. We don't need God. I say half a minute. The law of gravity, what does it explain? Gravity, no. No. In fact, Richard Feynman will tell you, nobody knows today what gravity is. The, nobody knows what energy is. Th this is, I remember you saying that uh, the last time we were together Ask someone, ask a scientist who works with energy at the highest level, what is energy? The idea, I mean, to me as a layman, that that scientist really has no answer. Yes. And you've said the same thing now about gravity, that we know it's, it exists, we know about it, but somehow even the greatest scientific minds of our time don't know what it is. And the great ones will admit it. The, oh, the greatest ones will admit it. But Let me pretend to be a philosopher for a second and quote Wittgenstein. It's always very impressive when you quote Wittgenstein. Yes, it is. It's tremendous stuff. Um, Wittgenstein once said, the great deception of modernism is that the laws of nature are explanations of the phenomena of nature. They are not. They're only descriptions. So the law of gravity describes what happens. Brilliant. Put people on the moon using it. But it doesn't explain it. So even in science itself, explanation is rarely complete. Yeah. So what people now have to face is explanation is rarely complete even on its own terms. Secondly, science cannot explain everything. If well, science was the only way to truth, you'd have to shut all literature faculties, all history faculties, all art. It's ridiculous. Well, science cannot tell us why we're here. No. Science cannot tell us what is good or evil. Absolutely. And that's crucially important, both of those questions. And what an extraordinary thing. So therefore, if you believe in the materialist worldview, and I've said this many times, it's, it's almost comical because you have to then believe that if everything is material and the world uh, evolved through accidents and mutations into what it is today, there, it's not that it can't explain good or evil, it, that it is actively saying there is no such thing in reality as good or evil. Oh, that's right. It is saying that good and evil must be arbitrary yeah. constructs, which is to say that if I murdered everyone here, no one could say that I did anything wrong. Correct. And if I love my wife and my parents and my daughter, no one could say there's anything beautiful or noble about that. It's just, uh, it's just chemicals uh, to perpetuate the species. It's an illusion of something transcendent, but there's no transcendence in it. Now, what you're saying is immensely important as part of the contemporary debate because it's shifted. You see, Einstein saw that. He said, you can speak of the ethics of, of science, but you can't speak of the science of ethics, you see. He could say that ethics goes beyond science, and Feynman said the same. The forces in the universe don't come with labels telling you what you ought to do or ought not to do. That goes beyond science. Now, 
the current wave, starting with Dawkins and his crew, but particularly Sam Harris, they see, they want to get rid of religion. This is the new atheism, which has now been replaced, by the way, by the new, new atheism. Because people are fed up with the, with the vitriol and with the aggression of the new atheism. So they've gone back to the new, new atheism, which is just atheism. Let's be polite with one another. Let's say there is no God. Let's take the good bits out of religion, but let's just not do God. Yeah. That's where we're back to. And then the question is, why take the good bits out of religion? Now, that's exactly right. The moral questions are central. Now, David Hume is about the only point on which I agree with him, because <laughs> I disagree with so much of what he said. But he said he often noticed people were describing a situation and is what is. And then suddenly the language became moral. You ought to. And he says, but you can't get from an is to an ought. Now, if you're a materialist, you've got to. Because there is oughtness in the universe. There are moral values. So how do you get from a universe of sheer factuality of atoms and so on to what? You can't do it. Now along comes Sam Harris, and he believes he can. And for years, Dawkins said it's very difficult to get to morality from material. Now he thinks Sam Harris has solved the problem. Now, this is a huge issue. I don't think Harris has solved the problem for the simple reason he smuggles the morality in at the beginning and, of course, it comes out at the end. And I delayed the publication of my book, Gunning for God, so that I could deal with Sam Harris's argument. Gunning it's for God. Gunning for God. Yeah. That's the book where I deal with all the moral arguments as distinct from the scientific arguments. But what interested me in that period was this. Your argument is perfectly right. This materialism abolishes morality. Dawkins admitted that. There's a famous quote that he's never taken back so far as I know that goes roughly like this. This universe is just as you'd expect it to be. At bottom, there is no good, no evil, no justice. DNA just is and we dance to its music. And I remember, I mean, he writes well, you know, he, some of the sentences are beautifully crafted. But if that is true, you know, if the shooters in the Columbine massacre in the States or the people that flew the planes into the Twin Towers are just dancing to the music of their DNA, well, who can blame them? Right. There's no blame. Now, Dawkins, amazingly, because he is a moral being made in the image of God, tries to back off from that. There's his theory. It's out there in his book. There's no good. There's no evil. And yet he says, well, we're the only creatures that can rebel against our selfish genes. Well, the atheist chorus that is intelligent just laughed and said, where is this non-physical principle that enables you to rebel? It leads to contradiction. Yeah. My view of it put very provocatively, but I like to say it is the trouble with materialism is not that it shoots itself in the foot. That's painful. It shoots itself in the brain. That's fatal. But you're onto a vastly important subject. Here we are in Europe. We're sitting in France. There is moral confusion everywhere. Yeah. Because when the question comes up, any law, morality is introduced, the question comes back, who said so? For centuries, this continent, 
North America, since the very beginning, since its constitution, was dominated by a biblical view of morality that had a transcendent source in God. But once you remove that, where do you get morality from? The number of logical sources is very small. You either get it from raw nature and genetics or from social conditioning and so on. And the trouble is, if you try to get morality from biology, you get too many moralities. The simplest illustration of that is Charles Darwin was a nice man with a beard. And he studied ants, saw them cooperating. There's a ground for altruism. His contemporary Spencer saw nature red in tooth and claw. We have, in our history of the past hundred years, seen both of those applied. But which are you going to apply? How are you going to decide? And so there's huge moral confusion. And if you teach people that all they are is a product of time, chance, and their selfish genes, they'll begin to behave like it, and we're seeing it, and there are no brakes on it. Well, so these, these ideas of consequences. You said something yesterday, which I wanted to remind you about today. We were talking about the universe being created ex nihilo, out of nothing. And it's oh, hard man. for us to imagine nothing. When we imagine nothing, we always imagine empty space. But, of course, the God uh, who created the universe, or whether you believe in God or not, any scientist would say space itself and time were created 13.8 billion years ago. There was nothing, and out of nothing came the universe. We have no idea why. People say that uh, it can create its hawking, you said, can, says that the universe would create itself, which is ridiculous. But you made a point about the universe being created out of nothing, and I wanted to remind you about that. Yes, and I'm glad you did, because I didn't complete my, where I started with Stephen Hawking was the shock at reading this statement. Because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. So if it's okay, I'll go back to that oh, yeah, statement. Yeah. And... It's ridiculous, but it's triply ridiculous, which is very difficult to write a sentence that's triply ridiculous. But he's very intelligent. Yes, I see. Well, anyway, because... Let me analyze it if it's not too late in the day for logic. Um, Because there is a law of gravity, because there is something, the universe will create itself from nothing. That is a flat contradiction. Because there is something, law of gravity. The universe will create itself from nothing. Contradiction. That wipes it out completely. In other words, gravity itself uh, can't pre-exist the universe. In other words, isn't he assuming that gravity pre-exists the, the universe? He's saying something very interesting. He doesn't say because gravity exists. If he'd said because gravity exists, the universe will create itself from nothing, that would have been worse. Okay. Because gravity is something. Okay. He says because there is a law of gravity... But that's also something, but it's an abstract something. Yeah. But you see, what would gravity be if the, what would a law of gravity mean if there was no gravity? Right. And this opens a window to something else that's heavy. utterly fascinating. It's not difficult, actually. You just think, Lewis got there first. Lewis taught me this years ago, that the laws of nature don't create anything. And because there is a law of gravity, is moving in that direction, that the law somehow creates something. Well, Lewis dealt with this brilliantly. 
And I can illustrate it by a lovely conversation I had, a very brief one with Peter Atkins, who's a great atheist physical chemist, written hundreds of brilliant textbooks. He's a very good expositor. After a debate at Oxford, I wasn't debating, I was listening. I said, Peter, what created the universe? Without hesitation, he said mathematics. And I was so caught off guard, I started to laugh. And that was very embarrassing for me. And he was not pleased. He said, why are you laughing? Well, I said, Peter, do you want an honest answer? He said, yes, I do. I said, because that's the stupidest thing I think I've ever heard. <laughs> he said, why? Not well, I said, honest, let please. me make it simple. One plus one equals two. Did I ever put two pounds in your pocket? Now, this is Lewis. And he points out this huge mistake that people think that the laws of mathematics or physics create things. Listen, he says, the laws of motion, Newton's laws of motion, will never move a billiard ball in the history of the universe. A person with a cue do that. The law of motion describes its bounces for a while anyway, but it won't move it. And then he says, you know, you can do arithmetic from here to all eternity, and it'll never produce any money. You first get one dollar and then another dollar and you'll have two. But first get your dollars because the laws are all of the form. If you have A and B, you'll get C. But you've got to get A and B first. And sometimes I try to make it slightly amusing. Well, it's a bit sad for people who've lived through the financial crisis because our great financial crisis was caused in part by people who thought mathematics could create money. Uh -huh. It doesn't. The mathematics just does the describing. So here's Hawking saying, a law of gravity is enough. It isn't. Paul Davis says the same thing more explicitly. He says, I don't like to think of a God tinkering. They always use negative put-down yeah, words. Tinkering. I like to think of a clever law of mathematics doing the whole thing. Now he's talking nonsense. Well, the idea, first of all, we have to talk about what is a law of mathematics or what is mathematics. Um, is that not abstract? In other words, of course if, it's if, abstract. If we do not perceive these things in our minds and, and it's immaterial. And write them, write them on a piece of paper. What is it? Yes, exactly. It's it's completely. You know, you almost have to ask if if there weren't a human being to perceive the math, does the math exist? Yes, that is if a there very interesting question. If there weren't a mind, God's mind or our mind, to perceive the math, can the math exist without our perception of it? Yes. My reaction to a lot of this is, as I said earlier, Hawking's a brilliant mathematician, utterly. But there are aspects of the nature of maths and science they simply do not understand. Now, that goes on in that sense. We've now seen it's this flat contradiction, so it's false. Secondly, the idea of a law of gravity on its own doing something is false. That's the second false it's also, idea. It's also funny. Yes, it is. Now, here's the funniest idea, though, is the third part of the sentence. The universe will create itself. Well, if I say that X creates Y, roughly speaking, I'm saying something like if you've got X, you'll get Y. You're presupposing say, X. Yes. If I say X creates X, I'm saying if you've got X, you've got X. You'll yeah. get X. And what does that mean? Well, this is the way I put it. It means that nonsense remains nonsense, even if Stephen Hawking writes it. <laughs> wow. Now, here is the key argument of his book. 
This is a simple it's, it's, a, it's actually embarrassing and sad. Yes, because and there's been no response from that camp to my book whatsoever in about five years. No. Well, again, this is why I do these little things, uh, b- because we need to talk about these things more and force people to recognize that uh, their gods, small g, like Stephen Hawking, uh, have feet of clay. It's amazing that you can, in a few minutes, make the central thesis of his most recent book sound not only false, but ridiculous. And I'm not finished yet. And you're not finished yet. No, because we must talk about nothing, you and I. Yeah, actually. I'm going to be very serious about nothing. I wanted to bring you back to your statement. Yes, much ado about nothing, but there is much ado about nothing. You see, here's Hawking, the universe created itself from nothing. Now, what is nothing? You ask that question. Well, when you look at his book, you think nothing is the absence of anything. That's how we normally, that's the normal meaning of the word. Okay. What we call the philosophical meaning of it. Okay. Anything. But oh no. As you go through the book, you discover nothing is a quantum vacuum. He says that. Yes, yes, he does. And various other things. Can you tell us what, that, such, what a quantum well, vacuum is? Not really. Okay. Not really, but it's certainly not nothing. In fact, if you want fun, you ought to get this. I don't have it here to quote, but quote it on one of your programs on Science and God. David Albert's review of Lawrence Krauss's book, A Universe from Nothing, is hilarious. It's hilarious. <laughs> now, Lawrence Krauss is another, he now goes round with Dawkins. I think he tries to replace Christopher Hitchens, you know, as a great new atheist. He's written a book, A Universe from Nothing. So I picked this up, and I thought this would be interesting. I've crossed swords with him a couple of times. (laughs) But anyway, in the first few pages of the book, I come across this sentence, which I've memorized because it's so wonderful. Here's what he says. Because something is physical, nothing must be physical, especially if you define it as the absence of something. That is very interesting. What? That is very interesting. It's utter nonsense. Well, of course it is, but the, but but it's it is saying that uh, it, it's insisting that um, it. Well, it's <laughs> it's almost making nothingness sound purely. Subjective. In other words, it's only our perception of nothingness through a materialistic lens. H- how, do you, how do you talk about nothingness? Yes, uh, because he's desperate. And the reason he's desperate, let's stand back for this. There's a big canvas here. The irony of all of this is that the current views, although some of them are changing at the moment, but let's take the average state at the moment, is that the universe started, as you said, Space-time started 13.45 billion years ago, and there was nothing. Nothing. Now, that means, here's the big question that Leibniz asked. Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, so long as you believe in an eternal universe, you don't have a problem. Yeah. The problem is now created. How do you get a universe from nothing? Hence, all these books addressing this question, nothing. Everyone I have read talks nonsense. Now, this is very interesting. To get rid of the obvious answer, which I'll come to in a moment, they redefine nothing. That's the way it's done. You redefine nothing. 
And <laughs> this idea that because something is physical, nothing must be. That is just sheer nonsense. It has no meaning whatsoever. And he goes on through the book and all sorts of definitions of nothing. And, and David Albert has this marvelous review. And he points out that the very last thing there nothing is, is nothing. But I got invited to the Harvard MIT Faculty Club, of which you may have heard. And I was invited to have an open dialogue with Alan Guth. Now, Alan Guth is the world's leading cosmologist at MIT. Very nice man. And he's the inventor of the theory of inflation. That is the idea that a very, very short time after the Big Bang, there was a massive acceleration in the expansion of the universe and so on. And it explains certain things and people still query it, of course. It's, there's a lot of speculation, but nevertheless, he is immensely famous and deservedly so. And I was having this debate and I was terrified, of course. He's the world's number one cosmologist and we're talking about things that involve God, which he didn't do, actually. His talk went like this. Let me tell you about the origin of the universe and inflation and so on. And we had 15 minutes each. And in the last 30 seconds, he said, of course, if you want to add God to that, that's fine, but I prefer not to. That was the total about God. Mm. I talked about God and um, received a lot of hostility, which is rather strange and such an erudite thing. But in the question session, I thought I'd ask him publicly. I said, Alan, you know, there's a question that I've been dying to ask someone of your eminence. Everybody is talking about nothing. And I said, tell us, when you use the word nothing in the context of the origin of the universe, do you mean what most of us mean by nothing? That is the absence of anything. He said, no, we do not. I said, thank you very much. So I know all about nothing. You see, as a result of that, it is massively fascinating that the only way to avoid God is foolishness. Now, hang that on, is hang just on. just fascinating. That's an aphorism worthy of putting on a sampler. That's just beautiful. Well, you the may only way to, to avoid me. God we is, can start a business. is foolishness. Um, no, the only way to avoid God in that context in that, is foolishness. Is, is foolishness when you're dealing with the concept of nothing. But there's something I need to say here because Christian people often say, well, what do you say? What is your answer as a Christian? And I've come to see this is important. And the way I put it very carefully is this. The universe comes from nothing physical. It does not come from nothing. It comes from God who is not physical. And one of the great assertions of Scripture is that God is spirit. And this turns materialism on its head. Materialism says there is material. There is no spirit. Yeah. The biblical view is there's both, but the primary one is spirit. In the beginning was the word. The word is material. The word is God. The word is spirit. All things came to be through him. That is the material universe is not primary. Materialism says it is. Naturalism says it is. Scripture says it is not. God is primary. It's derivative. So the universe came from nothing physical. This is so fascinating. Nothing. I've never heard anyone say this before. You said it last night and again now. 
the idea that the universe, we say the universe came from nothing. In fact, that's not true. Uh, it came from nothing physical. So yeah. if you presuppose that the only thing that is, is what is material, uh, then that's true. But what's interesting is but that... But you have no explanation. But you have no explanation, and they certainly don't. But when you, So <laughs> when you're talking about the, the creation of the universe and the universe and the material universe, science cannot reason its way to talk about anything beyond the universe. So if there is something beyond the universe, which we know there is, science... Uh, has no business talking about it positively or negatively. Now, this is important, Eric. This is important because you would be challenged on that, as I have been. Yeah. And I've got a bit of an armory here to, to fire against this objection. This is what we call scientism, mm -hmm. a word I have not yet used. No, that's, that's, it's, it's a good word to it use is. here because scientism it's an important word. Yeah. Is the idea that science is the only way to truth. Right. Now, I pointed out that that is a contradiction because that statement doesn't come from science. One of the most helpful people I've read, who's a hero both of Richard Dawkins and of me, oddly, is Sir Peter Medawar, who wrote a book on advice for a young scientist. And he says in that book, there is nothing that brings disrepute on science more than the suggestion that science can answer every question. He said it's so obvious that science is limited. Now, he spoke as a Nobel Prize winner. It's so obvious science is limited. Why? Because it cannot answer the questions of a child. Where do I come from? Where am I going? What's the meaning of my life? We've got to go beyond, and he said the literature and so on for an answer to that. And it's an axiom for me, this recognition that science is limited. Dawkins doesn't believe it is. Hawking doesn't believe it is. Hawking makes the most amazing statement. You'll not believe this. But Hawking, at the beginning of this book, The Grand Design, he talks about the big questions, the origin of the universe and life and all this kind of thing. And then he says this, and I think, wonderful. This great mind dealing with these questions. Then he says, these used to be questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. And it is left to science to be the torchbearer of truth for this generation. Now, of course, the world of philosophy piled in on him. Philosophy is dead, he says on page five of his book. The rest of the book is on what? The philosophy of science. <laughs> <laughs> and he proves beyond a shadow of doubt that as far as he's concerned, philosophy is dead because he doesn't understand it. <laughs> Einstein warned us, and I ought to warn you, I'm a quasi-scientist. The scientist is a poor philosopher. And all we've been saying, Eric, is really this. I have no doubt that these people are brilliant. But it's what they do with their science that is philosophically often very naive and frequently completely false. And I suspect there'd be virtually no one in the audience watching this program who won't understand the majority of these arguments. They're not difficult. But 
the public isn't exposed to them. They don't know how to navigate. And so they're browbeaten into thinking, oh, science has said there's no God. My main motivation for writing my little book, which is quite easy to read, God and Stephen Hawking, whose design is it anyway? <laughs> That's the title of the book, was a young man was driving his car in Belfast, the capital city of my home, tiny little country out there in the ocean. And there was a newspaper hoarding at the side of the road. Stephen Hawking says there's no God. Now this chap was a believer. He was about 20 or something. He nearly crashed his car. He said the effect of seeing that made him shake so much that he had to pull the car to the side of the road and he stopped. And he said to himself this, if Stephen Hawking says there's no God, who am I to say there is? I wrote the book because of him. And my brother, who's a pastor, placed a little article I'd written in one of our major newspapers against this statement on the seat in the church, and that young man read it. And it restored him to faith in God. And that made it all worthwhile, you know. But it really does concern me. It even angers me, this misuse of science. When we ought to be saying, the heavens declare the glory of God. Isn't it obvious? Most uh, people would say it's obvious. Yes, they would. And so they're denying a perception. And Dawkins says, it's terribly, terribly tempting, he writes, to believe there is a designer. Of course there is, because there is one. Hawking in his book goes even further, and he writes a couple of chapters on fine-tuning. Now, you mentioned this. I wrote... Uh, quite a bit on the issue of the fine-tuned universe, most of which I stole from Dr. Hugh Ross and from Dr. John Lennox. Uh, I'd love it if you, uh, who introduced me to some of this stuff, could talk just for a few minutes. Because when people are introduced to this idea that science is pointing us increasingly to God, something inside many people says, yes, it makes sense. And something inside many people says, I hate that. I'm repulsed by the idea. But it seems clear to you that that's the case. When I was doing a debate in Oxford, I was up against one of Oxford's top philosophers. And he had the kindness to say to me, I hope you're going to use your best argument against atheism. I said, oh, well, if you tell me what it is. He said, fine-tuning. He said, if ever I were to become a theist or a Christian, it would be because of fine-tuning. And I said, that's very interesting. Well, he said, I find it very impressive. So does Stephen Hawking. In his book, he says, what has happened in the last 100 years, say, is we've discovered that the universe has to be extremely delicately balanced to have carbon-based life in it. The fundamental constants that were apparently fixed at the beginning have to be accurate to unimaginably precise tolerances. Now, Fred Hoyle, when he discovered the resonance that was necessary to produce carbon, he said, nothing shook my atheism so much as that discovery. I knew Fred Hoyle. I talked to him several times about these things. And that was only a tolerance of one in a hundred or five in a hundred. It wasn't much. But right. now we're talking about tolerances and accuracies to one part in 10 to the power of 10 to the 123. It's just unimaginable. That's Sir Roger Penrose's estimate, another atheist. So the idea is that this demands an explanation. And Hawking says in his book, this 
fine-tuning demands an explanation. And then he says this. He says, some prefer the old idea. This is chronological snobbery now. Yeah. If it's old, it's hopeless. It's worse than the that. The old idea that there's a creator. Yeah. But I prefer, and he mentions John Polkinghorne as yeah. one who does believe in a creator as evidenced by fine-tuning. Yeah. John Polkinghorne taught me quantum mechanics at Cambridge. And then he says, but I prefer the multiverse. Which is ridiculous. And the multiverse has <laughs> no evidence for it. Now, we haven't time to go into that. But the thing is, here again is the false dichotomy. God or the multiverse. But God can create as many universes as he likes, sure. as has been pointed out. So the fine-tuning is there and it is paralleled in scripture. And that's interesting because the biblical record doesn't say that God created everything at once. There was a start, there yeah, was a sequence yeah, yeah. of creation and events which had a goal. That's the Bible's version of fine tuning. In the case of science, it's the fine tuning is told to us by the fact that we've got life here. The Bible says the Universe is finely tuned in order to have life here, made in the image of God. Now, that's a huge, big story. But I feel it is part of the evidence that points right in the direction of, in the beginning was the word, all things came to be through him. So let's end with the beginning. Uh, John Lennox, it is really uh, very frustrating only to have two hours speaking with you. It is so delightful but because of the practicalities of this format, uh, we have to end there. But I am so grateful to you uh, that I can hardly tell you. I'm so grateful to Larry Taunton and the Fixed Point Foundation. I'm so grateful to all of you for being our audience. And uh, let me ask you to do one final thing, if I could. Uh, give a hearty Socrates in the south of France uh, thank you to our special guest, Dr. John Lennox. Thank you very much. Thank you.